Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dan Millman. Dan is a former world champion athlete, university coach, martial arts instructor, and college professor, and now a writer, speaker, and coach. After an intensive 20-year spiritual quest, Dan's learnings and teachings found its form in the Peaceful Warrior Way, which became a best-selling book and a movie. He's written 17 books, including The Way of the Peaceful Warrior and The Life You Were Born to Live. Today, he's going to share his wisdom with us. Dan, can you tell me briefly about your background, the work you do, and how you got into it? Sure. Uh, It all began as a kid climbing trees, swinging ropes, and I loved to jump up and down on a trampoline. And I had no idea that would lead anywhere beyond just the joy of doing the activity. But it ended up leading to a scholarship to UC Berkeley. Uh, I was a gymnast. Uh, I won a world championship on the trampoline, and I became an all-around gymnast. So I was focused back then on um, how I could create more talent for sport. Um, To me, talent was about 20%. Um, inherited or innate, certain body types lent themselves to certain sports, for example. But about 80% of talent, what I defined as the ability to learn easier and faster and rise to higher levels, that seemed to me I I could develop uh, and increase by these foundation qualities of strength and flexibility and coordination, timing, and so on. And when I began coaching after my gymnastics career was done, Um, at Stanford University, uh, I focused on that. Uh, Instead of the skills of gymnastics, I worked with young men on how to build this foundation of talent, and my theories did work in practice. Um, The team went from the bottom of the conference to one of the top three teams in the United States in three and a half years, and I coached the top U.S. Olympian. And I might still be coaching today, Chris, but Um, I began to realize that the specific skills I learned, handstands, cartwheels, somersaults, and that sort of thing, it didn't help me when I went out on a date. (laughs) And it didn't help me when I got married or had children uh, or dealt with financial challenges, career decisions. Um, And so I started asking bigger questions. You know, how, how can we develop talent, not for sport necessarily, but talent for living? for the actual things, the challenges we face in everyday life. And that led me into the field in which I've been teaching for uh, 40 years now, um, which call it personal development, if you will. But uh, that question about talent for living led me around the world studying with various mentors, and it led to an approach to living. I ended up calling the, the peaceful warrior's way. And peaceful warrior really applies to all of us because all of us are seeking to live with a more peaceful heart uh, in the midst of the challenges of everyday life. But also there are times we need a warrior's spirit uh, to roll up our sleeves and and march into life and and, and deal with the the realities of life. So it's not an escapist or or new agey type uh, approach. It's very practical, uh, though it does deal with some big picture elements one could describe uh, perhaps uh, based on spiritual foundations. So I think that's as, as good a summary as I can provide. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, can you talk more about this idea of a peaceful warrior? What does it mean to live as a peaceful war- warrior? And what are the benefits of doing that? And how does somebody embody it? Sure. Um, well, you know, many people gravitate. There's something about that term, peaceful warrior. They say, you know, that could apply to me. And they're correct. 
we're all peaceful warriors in training. And, and so it's not a thing. It's not a separate club you can join or an initiation. It just describes human beings as I see them in everyday life. Now, uh, how does this differ from some other approaches, whether scientific or new age or, and so on? And that's a big question, but I, I can describe it in several ways. Uh, as I, I said, I base it on um, universal law rather than just my opinion. And, and universal law, I have to say, really defines um, our world. It, it, spiritual law, universal law. Uh, describes how uh, waves break on the beach, how flowers turn toward the sun, uh, the mystery and mechanics of the universe. And and in fact, mystics and scientists are both seeking the same thing, to understand these laws uh, of nature, of the universe. And so uh, based on the, the idea of uh, being in touch with reality and how it unfolds and uh, uh, aligning our lives to these, these universal principles or laws um, – one example is the focus that I bring is action. In other words, there are many uh, approaches to living that uh, emphasize having us feel better and having the right emotions like confidence and courage and uh, kindness and compassion. And if we just feel this more, then we can live well. Or the idea of the mental training, that if we can just have more positive thoughts, fewer negative ones, positive self-talk, um, and, and correct our thinking, um, then we can go out and live well. And I've noticed uh, as a principle of reality that we have less conscious control over what thoughts arise in our awareness, discursive mind, all kinds of thoughts, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, pop into my awareness. But I have less control over that. I don't have a spam filter in my head. Uh, I've never met anybody who does. And there are many, many techniques to try to influence our thoughts and think more positively. And same thing with feelings. There are techniques to feel this and feel that. But I find it more direct to focus on what do I need to do now? Because I believe our lives are shaped in large part by the actions we've taken. Um, so the horse I'm betting on is effort over time and focusing on constructive action rather than fixing our feelings or our thoughts. Um, so that's one difference of, of some other approaches. Um, and of course, I do help people to behave in constructive ways. We're not robots. I mean, our, our, our feelings, our beliefs, our self-concept, those things can influence uh, our tendencies to behave in a certain way, but they don't control it. And in fact, um, uh, I can, I can, something I like to uh, remind people of, um, to progress toward your goals, you know, we, we need to, to choose one of two of the following methods. And, and the first, which is very popular, Chris, I think you'll recognize uh, much in this. One can find a way to quiet our mind, create empowering beliefs, raise our self-esteem and practice positive self-talk to find our focus and affirm our power to free our emotions and visualize positive outcomes so that we can develop the confidence to generate the courage to find the determination to make the commitment to feel sufficiently motivated to do whatever it is we need to do. Um, there's another approach which I recommend. It's we can just do it. And life will always come down to that. What do can I do now? 
many of us know that. We can't control circumstances, but we can control more our response to those circumstances. So even acknowledging that our emotions and our beliefs and, and, and so on uh, will influence or create tendencies to behave in a certain way, we're here as peaceful warriors to overcome those tendencies and to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of changing emotions or passing thoughts and begin to focus on acting effectively. And that is the warrior's way. That describes the ancient samurai, the, the, the Zen masters, and so on. And we can learn this in, in the school of everyday life. So that's, I hope that responds to your question. That's one, one difference anyway. Yeah, it's great. I and mean, one of the things that came up as you're saying that is um, our emotions can hijack our, our rationale or our logic, right? And so you talked about emotions and thoughts when these things come up, because inevitably they will, there's different things in our life. We acquire traumas. We, um, things will trigger us when these things come up and our amygdala, our brain starts going a little crazy and causing us to react. How do you suggest a person work through that? Well, I think that's a very important question you're asking because sure, there are people who are suffering from PTSD. There are times someone is, has a phobia or they're very, very afraid of something. You know, a friend of mine was terrified of flying in airplanes. Well, actually, he wasn't afraid of flying as he described it. He was afraid of crashing. Um, and he said, and yet he needed to fly to Japan many times a year, um, back and forth. He teaches there. And he discovered through doing this what he, his strategy was. He painted pictures of flowers. It was a hobby of his, uh, uh, with a little um, marking pen on takeoffs and landings when he was most anxious. But he literally uh, never got over the fear. He still uh, had white knuckles and still uh, was afraid. But he said he discovered. He said, Dan, people don't not fly because they're afraid to fly. The reason they don't fly is because they don't buy a ticket. And they don't get on the airplane and sit in their seat and fasten their seatbelt. That's why they don't fly. In other words, he was demonstrating you can be afraid and still do something. You can be tired and still do something. Um, so what I, I'm not suggesting, it's so easy to misunderstand this idea. I'm not devaluing emotions or saying we should ignore emotions and just, uh, you know, they're nonsense. And no, in fact, emotions have stories to tell. Uh, if, if every time I see a particular person, I feel anxious or sad or angry, there's something to learn there. So emotions, I, I treat my emotions like I did my daughters when they were young. I honor them. I cherish them. Uh, I accept them but I don't let them take over and run the entire household. Well, that's not entirely true <laughs> in the case of my daughters. But um, emotions do have their values, but we're not meant to live an emotion-centered life. It's chaotic because emotions change all the time. If we pay attention, we'll see. Sometimes we're a little bored, sometimes engaged, excited, sad, angry. Those things pass. They're like the weather patterns of the body. So we need to be aware of our emotions, accept them, accept our thoughts. Notice them, just as in meditation, we notice them, but that we still, as we notice them and coexist with them, we say, what do I need to do now? So it's not easy, of course, and there are people who are desperately afraid, and for me just to say, oh, just behave, you know, reasonably, we're not robots, uh, and we're not machines, in the sense that uh, it can take time, it can take time to develop the skill. Um, and let me give one example. 
someone might say, well, wait a minute, Dan, you're saying you can feel angry and just behave kindly to someone? You cannot like somebody and be courteous to them? Yeah. And they might say, well, wait, isn't that inauthentic? Isn't that hypocritical? Not feeling one thing and behaving it differently? And, I'm, and I usually respond, okay, let's say you're feeling afraid, but a, but a condition, a circumstance calls for you to behave with courage. What then? Is that hypocr hypocrisy to behave with courage even if you're feeling afraid? I don't think so. In fact, we can't show courage unless we're feeling afraid. So just as we can feel afraid of something and still behave courageously, uh, we can also feel angry and behave with kindness. This is not easy to do. This is not a conventional way to live. Uh, it's unreasonable, and yet it describes very effective people. There was a psychiatrist named Shoma Morita, Japanese psychiatrist, who had three guidelines for living wisely and well. He said, accept your thoughts and feelings as natural to you in the moment. Accepting them doesn't mean trying to fix them, change them, run from them, or obey them. It's just accept them. There, That's what you're feeling. That's what you're thinking. Second, focus on a constructive goal. What do you want to get done? What needs to be done in the circumstance? And three, do what needs to be done in line with your goals. But again, I have to give a qualifier there. It's not easy to do, but if we practice it, like any practice, we get better over time. And people talk about enlightenment and so on, but this is really a form of liberation, practical liberation in everyday life, to accept our feelings, know what they are, know our thoughts, notice them just as we might in meditation, but then focus on what's real, what's right now, and behave in a manner that's kind. So one of the most controversial things I teach, Chris, is that I'm not asking people to feel compassionate or kind or happy or loving or courageous or confident. I'm only asking them to behave that way. Practice behaving with those positive qualities, no matter what thoughts or feelings are coming through us. And again, I will repeat that doesn't mean we ignore our thoughts or feelings. They may have good information to tell us. But nonetheless, um, what would it be like to behave with all those virtuous ways, even as the storms of emotion, changing emotion and thoughts continue to pass through us and rise in our awareness? What, is the, what about the idea that thoughts happen to us? We don't think them. They simply arise in our awareness. What about the idea that emotions pass through us like the weather and change all the time? And what, what would a life look like if we can simply, not simply, not easily, but simply notice what we're feeling and thinking and meanwhile focus on what we do? And again, this, is, this focus on action is one of the qualities, this approach to living that I call the peaceful warrior's way. Uh, there are other qualities such as living in the present moment. Now, we've all heard that. I don't think any of your listeners you know, are slapping their forehead going, wow, who knew? But why would we want to focus on the present moment? Well, for one thing, it's the only moment of reality because everything else that we call past or future is simply our memory or our imagination. The only thing that's real is right now. Another reason to focus on the present is people like to quiet their mind. Well, you can't think about anything in the present moment. In the present, right now in front of you, is just pure awareness. As if somebody threw a, a baseball to you and said, catch. While you're reaching for that ball in midair, you're not thinking about what you're going to eat for dinner tonight or what you did yesterday. 
If you do, you may miss the ball. But if you, you're just focusing pure awareness like a cat reaching for that ball, which is why people like to play frisbee and do, play musical instruments and perform and do sports because it brings us back into that zone, that absorption. Uh, it's been said in many ways, flow, you know. Um, so that's another emphasis of this approach is it's more realistic and practical to focus on the present. You know, Mark Twain once said, I've had many troubles in my life, most of which never happened. That's because most of them are in the past or future. When you talk about pure awareness um, or getting to that state of being present, for somebody who isn't there right now, like how, how would you suggest or walk them through getting present? Well, the simplest way, as I hinted at a few minutes ago, is throw something in the air and catch it. Um, at some of my retreats, I teach people to juggle. Uh, it's a way of learning how to learn, and it's also a form of meditation. Uh, it's also a metaphor or analogy of how we can approach the many things that come at us in everyday life, one at a time. So it's very useful practice. It's not just a circus or silly circus art. It can be quite useful as a meditation, as a break, because the moment we throw something in there and catch it again, we're in the present. And the trick is to have that happen more of the time. And I'll tell you a story, if, if I may. Um, I was in the gymnasium. This was many years ago. I had recovered from a shattered right leg that I describe in the way of the Peaceful Warrior in my first book and also in the movie based on that book. Um, and I'm getting back in shape. And Socrates is watching me in the gym uh, in his own way. Uh, nobody else is there. And I do a full twisting double somersault or some, something of that sort off the horizontal bar and I stick my landing, which is a good thing. Most people know that. You land without moving. And I figured it's good to quit on a high point. So I say, okay, that's it for the evening. And I rip off my sweatshirt and throw it in my workout bag. And then we're heading down the hallway. And he stops and turns to me and he says, you know, Dan, that last movie you did was really sloppy. And I said, what are you talking about, Sock? It was the best dismount I did in a long time. And he said, oh, I'm not talking about your dismount. I'm talking about the way you took off your sweatshirt and stuffed it in your bag. And he was reminding me that I was treating one moment as special, like the dismount, and another moment as ordinary. So he reminded me once again that there are no ordinary moments. And then he added something. And those words I never forgot. In fact, I got them into the movie version of the book. That's when he said to me, Dan, the difference between us is you practice gymnastics. I practice everything. And I had to think about that for a long time. What did he mean he practiced everything? And most of the time, we do things. We do the laundry. We do the dishes. We do our schoolwork or we uh, do our uh, tasks at work. But how many of us practice those things? Because as soon as we practice something, we're doing it with a commitment to refine it, to get better, to improve. How many of us are practicing our signature when we sign something? So he, he was giving me an approach to living that about practicing. I'm practicing speaking with you right now. Uh, everything I do, standing up, sitting down, moving, when I'm conscious of it, of course, I'm not always conscious of it, nobody is, but I practice and it brings my life into a more uh, artful approach. And it also helps me to um, focus more on the present moment, which is finally I got around to responding to your question. 
one of the things that comes up as you say, say that is I could see how this could, like th- this approach could allow someone to become more present. I can also see how it could make them more self-conscious in the sense that um, they begin to react uh, constantly to people and things around them. Do you agree with that? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, there's some interesting terms. You know, you've heard the term centered. To be centered, everyone says that's good to remain centered. But the shadow side of being centered uh, is being self-centered. Um, like many individual athletes, like myself, gymnasts, uh, ice skaters, tennis players, um, they can focus so much on their performance, their goal, their body, their mind, that there tends to be a, a, a phase they go through of self-observation and self-this and self-that. Um, and so being conscious is a good thing. Being self-conscious, maybe not so much because we tend to second-guess ourselves too much. We tend to be too self-reflective. Um, and, and that's not always healthy. In fact, the happiest people I know, their attention is out to other people in the world. Uh, many people are afraid of public speaking. And that's because they're focused on themselves. Do they like me? How's the audience receiving me? How do I look? It's all about them. But as soon as one turns one's attention to the audience, hi there out there, this is what I'd like to share with you, then the anxiety kind of goes away. Um, so I think in, in whenever someone goes into a study of the self, self-knowledge, which is so important, they go through a necessary phase, which can be a few years or a decade or more of being very self-conscious, noticing the thoughts they're having, the feelings they're having, uh, noticing their body, how it's moving and tension and so on. And though it can be described um, as a form of navel-gazing, I mean, sure, that's you know a pejorative way to look at it. Uh, and yet, I think it's a necessary phase we need to pass through because many people go through their lives without any sense of self-awareness because they haven't been self-conscious, they haven't been self-absorbed. Uh, for a time. And so there's nothing wrong with that phase, just like there's nothing wrong with childhood. We grow out of it, but you need it. It's a necessary foundation. So uh, if people go through that phase of being self-conscious, that's okay. Uh, notice it. You will pass through it, though. It's not the end result. Eventually, you turn your attention outward into the world and other people. And uh, that, that another buzzword, you know, mindfulness has become a big word. And we become mindful of ourselves, our thoughts, as in meditation, but we can also become mindful of others and, and the world as well. And as I said, the, the, the most miserable people tend to be completely self-focused, and happier people tend to be focused on what's going on around them and, and other people uh, in, a, in a giving kind of way. Uh, so that's how I, I think I would respond to that question. Why do you think that is, that um, people who are more mindful or, or, or conscious tend to be happier? Well, again, uh, someone who is mindful, how do I put it? Um, you know, if you look at a well, like somebody digs a well and it's got a, a nice little wall, a circular wall. You've seen a classical well and, and it looks peaceful. There may be flowers growing up around the top of it. But if you look down in that well deeply, you see the creepy crawlies in there. And there's a, a phase of self-knowledge where we begin to explore our shadow side aspects of ourselves we're not too happy about. Relationships are terrific to, to see ourselves in that way, in a more a complete way, more realistic way, not just our self-image. And we start to see our flaws, our weakness, our fears. Um, 
some of the greatest saints uh, declared themselves as being uh, uh, miserable uh, uh, sinners because they are so aware of their flaws. But it can be a humbling experience, and it humanizes one rather than brings a sense of self-entitlement and so on. Um, so it's not, it's not necessarily a formula. Um, be more conscious and you'll be happier. Because, you know, happiness comes and goes. Uh, um, if we were happy all the time, how would we know it? Uh, the measure of our, it's been said that the measure of our sorrows is also the measure of our joys. Life is a roller coaster ride. Who wants a level roller coaster? So it's natural to be happier sometime and less happy other times. Um, and I think this question of happiness, uh, I, I like to address it because anybody who's seen the Peaceful Warrior movie, uh, you know, the character Nick Nolte plays this old gas station sage called Socrates, and he says, happiness, it's the most important thing. And many people, you know, they wonder about this um, uh, because it seems selfish somehow. And in fact, in fact, there's another story I tell with me and Socrates. Um, I was going through a phase of intensive self-work, work on myself. I was doing self-massage, a Mongolian warrior massage to clear tension from the entire body, the bone surfaces of the body. Uh, I was doing self-analysis, self-observation, um, all this self-oriented work. And Socrates and I were walking down the street. This is Berkeley, California, um, during the Vietnam War when I was going to college. And I, you know, I saw a poster on the wall about oppressed peoples and another about starving children and, and then another about the war. And I said, Socrates, you know, I feel guilty or selfish doing all this work on myself when there are so many people in need out there and things that maybe I should become more of an activist like some people I know. And he, he turned to me and all he said was, I'll give you $5 if you can slap me on the cheek. Come on, take a swing at me. I had no idea what he was talking about, but I figured it was some kind of test. So I bobbed and weaved and tried to slap him. And the next thing I found was I was on the ground in a rather painful wrist lock. And as he let me up to my feet, he helped me up to my feet. He, he said, Dan, you notice a little leverage can be very effective? And I shook my wrist out and said, yeah, Sock, I noticed. And he said, well, if you want to help people and change the world, that's great. Do what your heart tells you. But... Don't neglect the work on yourself, which will allow you to develop the clarity and the courage to, and the wisdom and perspective to know how to exert the right leverage at the right place at the right time and really be effective. So it's not an either or, like, like just navel-gazing or being out there in the world. We can be both. That's why I recommend to people in this approach to living, I call the peaceful warrior's way, is we can have our head in the clouds, but we need to keep our feet on the ground. And that's a stretch for many of us. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. 
Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows, attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. You've talked a lot about or woven through um, some of the things that you have done in order to develop yourself into a higher level of consciousness. And I'm wondering if you could maybe go into more depth about your practice and how your practice has changed over time. How did you get yourself to a place where you were more conscious? Well, I would never present myself as um, more conscious than you or anyone else. Uh, that, that would be a dangerous position because life is a series of moments. Uh, I, I, for example, I've never met a neurotic person. I've only met people who have more neurotic moments. I've never met a conscious person, only people who have more conscious or awake, aware moments, mindful moments, let's say. Uh, I mean more like uh, your own consciousness. Yeah. Like how yeah. do you develop your own awareness? My own consciousness changes over time. I mean sometimes I'm practically asleep or, or uh, you know uh, – I was mentioning these moments and some, you know, I've had some intelligent moments. I've also had some pretty stupid ones. <laughs> I asked my daughters. So, <laughs> so the point is, it's not a matter of being just a conscious person as if we at some permanent state. Uh, we like to imagine that. But um, I've just paid attention. Um, for example, all the, all the traditions uh, uh, agree, know thyself. Now, why do we want to know ourselves realistically? Because if we don't really know ourselves, and many people don't do that self-reflection, uh, if we don't know ourselves, then we make the right decision for the wrong person, the one we thought we were. That can happen in relationships. It can happen in business or, or career. Um, so some degree of self-knowledge and awareness of self, how, how we really are. What are my talents? What are my values? What are my interests? Um, these things can be quite useful in terms of decision making and guiding ourselves through life and navigating the shoals. And so, what have I done? Well, um, I, I'm actually my next book project, my 18th book, um, and my last book probably in my career, I think, um, will be a memoir, and I will go into uh, uh, the story behind the story of Peaceful Warrior. People have read my book, say it's all about Socrates, the old man, you know, taught me and, and guided me up the path and so on. But really, there were a number of mentors in my life and experiences, as we've all had. Uh, I mean, I see daily life as, as uh, our classroom. As the earth is a perfect school, and we, uh, lessons repeat themselves until we learn them. Many of us have noticed that. And if we don't learn the easy lessons, they become more dramatic until uh, life is very patient, until it teaches us what we need to learn. So in, in a sense, um, another uh, quality about the Peaceful Warrior's Way is daily life is our spiritual school. I mean, a man came up to me once and said, I just read your book, Dan, and, you know, Peaceful Warrior, and it, and it just, uh, now I'm interested in spiritual practice, but I, how do I have time? I have a wife and three children and a full-time job. And he came to understand his wife, his children, his full-time job were his primary spiritual practices. And they will, believe me, they will develop us and demand more and develop more than sitting in a cave and meditating. I know because I've done both. 
When you describe his wife and his family as his primary spiritual practice, what does that mean to you? Well, to to respond to that, I, I have to bring up the term voluntary adversity. Um, anybody who's done sports understands that it is voluntary. Nobody made us do sports or continue with them. And life is easier without pursuing a sport. You know, it, it puts you up against frustration and struggle and you, you have to improve and get stronger and so on. So it's, it can be called a form of voluntary adversity. And adversity has hidden gifts. Uh, we become stronger and, and wiser uh, once we overcome challenges. Uh, maintaining a relationship with someone for more than two months, voluntary adversity. I mean, my wife and I, my wife Joy and I have been married 43 years. She's my best friend, guardian angel. I hope it's true for her uh, from my viewpoint too. Uh, um, and yet, it's not easy. Anybody who's been in a long-term relationship knows that. And raising children, voluntary adversity. We love our kids and grandkids, but um, it's not easy. Any parent knows that. Um, and business, doing business in the world, voluntary adversity. So really, that's how daily life uh, teaches us. And I find that an interesting way to look at life realistically. Um, and I don't know if that responds to your question, but I think it was a good lead. And your question again dealt with? how this man's family or his wife, how that followed sort of the thought process you're explaining of to course. us. Of course. Now, now I get it. Okay, that's right. Um, well, anybody who's been in a relationship for over time knows that we, we have to learn to negotiate, communicate, uh, uh, show some authenticity, lose face at times. Um, you know, they say you don't get what you deserve in life. You get what you're willing to negotiate. And it puts us up against self-worth. It puts us up against the balance of giving and receiving, um, of sacrificing at times um, what we want to do in the moment to what somebody else might want to do. Um, because two personalities living together, you know, bring up things. So that's, that's what I mean. That's how relationships can show us who we are and, and uh, demand our best. Um, it's not just all love and roses and, and, and you know, uh, the consolations of relationships, sex and, and companionship and that sort of thing. Those are all the pluses, but they're also challenges. And the same thing with our work. Work is like a way or a path. Um, it's not just a thing to go to to get money and come home. It's also a way to develop us, to, to meet challenges and demands and learn to deal with stress um, in, in a constructive way. Uh, so... Same thing with children. Um, they demand our attention. Uh, they, they test us all the time. Um, and it gives us a chance to really uh, allow someone else's needs to be as important or more important than ours at times. But that, even that in balance, you know, somebody once said, if I am not for me, who will be? But if I'm only for me, who am I? So there has to be a balance. In, uh, and we learn all this. In fact, Sports, uh, you know, athletes have learned universal laws. Athletes gain great wisdom, but most of the time they don't even know they know it because they're so focused on points and matches and winning and losing, they don't realize they're, they're embodying spiritual laws of process, of, of presence, of action, uh, balance. Uh, it's in the cells of their body. And most athletes completely miss the lesson because they're not paying attention. I mean, you could just 
sports is an interesting example, but I, I really like the example of relationships in the sense that if we tie it back to your earlier um, earlier comment about how experiences are, are lessons that repeat until we learn them, right? And so um, this idea that it's through relationships that all this stuff brings up, and if we don't learn the lessons and we repeat them over and over and over, and I think a lot of, a lot of people who have been haven't found that partner who are listening to who've been through a few relationships might hear some of the same things come up and either we listen to those messages and and uh, we evaluate ourselves and make changes or we ignore them and they continue to repeat and so in that way it's our interactions with other people and, and our interactions with the world and life that become sort of become our teacher um, that's exactly. what I'm hearing from you yes that's why I call daily life our, our spiritual school mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. In the life you were born to live, you talk about um, people finding purpose. I wonder if you could expand on that for the listeners so that, so that they can kind of understand and, and, and maybe take on more of that idea in their own life. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, purpose. The idea, I mean, one of my books is called Living on Purpose. Another is, you say, The Life You Were Born to Live. Another book I wrote called The Four Purposes of Life. So clearly, um, Purpose is central to this approach to living I teach. And, you know, in the Peaceful Warrior movie, there is a scene in which Dan and Socrates, the character Dan, um, supposed to be playing me, but he, he walks up to the top of this hill with, with his old mentor, Socrates, and Dan has a realization. He says, Sock, I just realized that it's the journey that makes us happy, not just the destination. And there is a certain wisdom in that. Um, after all, most of our life is the journey. Uh, there are only limited times where we reach a different destination. So, yes, it's good to enjoy the process rather than just the outcome. However, without a destination in mind, there is no journey. We just wander around. I believe that each of us is a hardwired goal seeker. Uh, when I look at my grandson, when he was an infant crawling across the floor, he was crawling to something. He wasn't just getting a fitness workout. He wanted something. Um, and even now he's two and a half. He goes, I want that. I want that. Um, he points. So that's how we are. We, I think people are the happiest when they're moving toward a goal. In fact, I would define success as making progress toward a meaningful goal or meaningful to us. People are most absorbed and most uh, engaged with life when they're moving towards something, writing a book, completing a project. Uh, whatever it is, if it's meaningful to them. And so I believe living purposefully um, is, is quite important rather than wandering around and, and finding a purpose. Um, now, you know, Lily Tomlin is one of my favorite quotes. She once said, I always wanted to be somebody, but maybe I should have been more specific. Uh, and, and I think being specific is quite helpful to us to allow ourselves to say, you know, I want this. And then it's it, something I put up on my website. I have these sayings each month. There's a different one on my website when you go to the splash page. Um, and one of them I had recently was dream big, but start small and then connect the dots. So that's how we can achieve our purpose, by dreaming big, aiming for a purpose that interests us, that's meaningful to us, and then take small steps in the right direction. And, and you know, to me, writing a book, for example, it can take several years, and it's like laying bricks, like a, building a, a huge wall 
around someplace or just but you're laying one brick at a time mortar then another brick then mortar then another brick word by word sentence by sentence you end up with a hundred thousand word book but it takes time and then you refine it and so on um, my daughter and I wrote a book called The Creative Compass. She's she's a quite a good writer, um, author also. And it's about writing, and it goes through five universal stages of the creative process. Anybody wants to be creative, they go through dreaming, which is coming up with ideas, plans, and so on, the dreaming part. Then drafting, which is bringing it into reality. It's not just in our heads anymore. It's on paper or on a computer. And then the development phase, that takes the longest. That's the one most people skip, which is stepping back and looking. How is it going and checking it out? But that can take the longest. And finally, the refinement stage and the sharing stage in some form with others. So we all go through this process, and we have to understand our lives are a process. Not to, it's not going to be a weekend seminar or reading one book by somebody. It may inspire us, but uh, it's practice for, for over time. Just like building a cabinet, we get better at it over time. And so this approach I teach, the way of the peaceful warrior, is a practice. Uh, happiness, I was talking about before, I don't see that as just a good feeling. To me, happiness is a practice. It's a way to radiate into life. And somebody might say, you might ask, well, what do you mean, Dan? How do you do that? What is that practice? Well, we all know what it feels like and how we behave when we're feeling very happy. We've all felt happy at times in our life. And if we look back, how do we behave when we're really happy? Do we behave? Ex are we expansive? Are we present? Are we uh, attentive? Are we open? Yeah, all those things when we're happy. And the practice is to behave that way more and more. Be a happy person in the world. Uh, not every moment, but in situations. Bring that to other people as a gift and see what happens. Whether we happen to be feeling happy at that moment or not, it's one of the ultimate practices. I have a couple questions around this. Um... The first is around happiness. The second is around um, your idea of purpose and a connection to intent. But first, I want to ask the, the happiness question. I was reading a book recently, and one of the things that came up was how during when we're building a bond with another human being, uh, it might start off with roses and sunshine, but at some point we have friction. And that friction, it's through the process of working through that friction that the bond becomes stronger. And when I read that, I thought about that in my own life. And I think it's generally true. There's some relationships where that friction is never worked through and the relationship dies. And, and there's other relationships where it is worked through. And there's some relationships where the friction never really comes up in any way, shape, or form. And in some of those relationships, a subset of that relationship, those relationships, I feel like they never get to a deeper level of depth. and like I wonder if, if sort of a projection of happiness all the time can inhibit a relationship from reaching a deeper level of depth. Do you think that's true or do you think – I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Of course. I do believe it's it's true. Um, you know, it can be inappropriate. I mean if somebody's upset, if I come home and my wife's upset about something, my sitting there with a beautiful uh, um, a Buddhistic smile is not – 
probably the appropriate thing to do. Um, but I can be I can be expansive. I can be attentive to her. I can bring that to her in the moment and be there with her, wh- whatever she's experiencing, in a compassionate way. It's it's not a giddy kind of approach to living. It's more expansive. The word happiness is deceptive because I don't think the end result, the end goal of life for human beings is just to walk around with a gleeful smile on our face all the time. That seems trivial and trite. Um, I believe what we're really looking for more than this happy feeling all the time is uh, we're looking for a sense of purpose, a connection, a meaning that our lives count for something. That's what I think we're really looking for. So it's almost a minefield talking about happiness. Um, and, and what you were mentioning as well, Chris, in, in terms of relationships, you know, there's this Goldilocks principle of relationships. I've seen relationships that, as you say, have no friction. People don't argue. They, they're so similar in their personalities or they just uh, don't like to be uncomfortable. So they find ways to work around things. Look, I was married when I'm very young for eight years and we finally got divorced. And I don't remember having an argument with her, ever. Whereas there are other relationships where people are so different that they're constantly compromising, working on the relationship, struggling to find some meeting ground. That can be exhausting. And then there's the Goldilocks principle where there's enough friction to keep things interesting, enough differences where they learn each other's perspectives and learn to honor those despite having a different point of view, which is my wife's and my relationship. You know, Socrates, not my teacher, but the ancient Greek, once said, by all means, marry. If you choose well, you'll be happy. And if you don't choose well, you'll become a philosopher. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, and and by the way, George Bernard Shaw, while I'm on the topic, said, um, if you don't marry, if you marry, you'll regret it. If you don't marry, you'll regret it. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's how people are too. But that's, he was a bit of a cynic. Um, so no, I, I think we can, you know, sometimes just a smile uh, in the right circumstance, if, it, if it's appropriate, can be an act of courage. It's because we don't always feel like smiling. Um, but again, I think we need to be not any way, whether it's happy or kind or courageous all the time, life changes, we change. But still, there's this thread of attention to behavior. What is an appropriate behavior in this moment? And that takes wisdom. It takes wisdom to know how to be kind, for example. Um, Sometimes tough love is a a form of kindness. So I don't have formulas to give people. There's no trail of breadcrumbs how to live well. You asked how I developed myself. Sure, I've done the spiritual work. I've done the meditations, the internal work, physical, emotional, mental, um, in, in for, for more than a decade um, when I was young. And I continue to do it, but it changes. It evolves over time. So we're all working on uh, – we're all maybe reading books, listening to podcasts, seminars, learning, picking up what wisdom we can – and uh, we're all, uh, I believe we're all doing the best we can each day of our life. Some days we do better than others, but um, we're always each day by definition doing the best we're capable of in that moment. And I think it's important to have compassion for ourselves as well. Can you talk about what that means for you? 
Well, you know, you can ask, how would I treat a, a, a beloved or a, a dear friend? Uh, what, what respect would I show them and kindness? And there are times we need to treat ourselves that way too. Uh, within a healthy discipline and making uh, gentle demands on ourselves. Um, even when I go to the gym, uh, you know, I, I, last year I had a, a knee replacement and a hip replacement, opposite sides. And after I went through physical therapy, I went to, started working out at the Y. And I started working out doing three reps of every exercise and really pushing it. And it was an ordeal. I was exhausted, but yeah, I was training, I was getting more buff, you know, I was for my age. Um, and yet it wasn't really fun at all. So I found a balance. I have other friends who all they do is go to the, you know, the shallow pool and dance around and do a little exercise there and it feels good and they sit in the sauna. That's great for them. But I had to find a balance. Um, again, that Goldilocks principle. Um, so now I do two reps uh, and it's about right. It feels good and vital and challenges me. But I don't have to wake up in the morning going, oh, here it comes. Because, you know, let me tell you a quick story. I, when I was a coach at Stanford, um, I walked into the gym one day and um, Brian, the captain of the team, was lying on the floor stretching. He got there early and he was stretching his leg like pulling a straight leg toward his chest and he was going, oh, this hurts so much. I hate it. And I looked at him. I thought I'd wandered into a Mel Brooks movie. It was like, well, Brian, who's doing it to you? <laughs> you know, and some people live that way. So we have to find a way to balance between the achievement and the pushing and the drive and also maybe being a little too laid back and not getting much done. Um, so part of my work is to help people function well in life. And that may not sound too spiritual uh, or too sexy, but people who get things done, uh, pick a goal and move toward it, they're more likely to have more of a default sense of fulfillment or happiness, if you will, than people who don't get things done. So it's, it's fairly direct and straightforward, just being able to function, paying attention to what's around us and responding to our environment. Like yesterday, my wife and I were walking, it's cold here in, in Brooklyn now, and it was a cold evening and we were walking somewhere and I had a warm down vest on and some gloves. And I noticed this guy on a bicycle uh, carrying these big black bags of uh, bottles and cans he was collecting so he could get some money for them. And I noticed, you know, it can be really cold on a bicycle without gloves, and he had no gloves. So I walked up to him and said, do you have any gloves? He said, no. Could you use some? He said, yeah. So I gave him mine. I had extras. So that just needed to be done in that situation. I wasn't being a saint or generous or anything. I just saw what needed to be done. So I gave him my gloves, and I, can, I had some more at home. Put my hands in my pocket. So these kinds of things, you respond to your environment. Um, and it's just uh, oh, that's a way to, to live consciously. It's not mystical or more spiritual than anybody else. It's just uh, responding to our environment and in relationships, remembering to be a friend to whoever we're with. Because my wife and I have been married 43 years because we are best friends. Uh, I've got her back. She's got mine. We're not competing to see who's doing more or less in the relationship. We, all, we both have our quirks. Um, and you know, we, we live with those and, uh, we enjoy each other's company. It's different than we first got met and we we're talking all the time, getting to know each other. That's always exciting. But, um, so I, it's just, yeah, in relationships, in, in, at work, 
is just paying attention what needs doing now and doing it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, any other sort of thoughts or words of wisdom on why you feel like your relationship has been able to last so long and how it's evolved over time? Well, you know, some of it's just luck. You, you happen to pick the right person. Uh, I mentioned, you know, you choose well, you'll be happy. You choose not, you'll be a philosopher. I guess I describe myself as a happy philosopher. That's the paradox. <laughs> um, it, it's, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I wish I could bottle it and, and have a secret uh, how it works. But again, I, I was divorced when I was young after eight years of marriage. And now I've been married many years and it worked out. I learned from the first time. I learned about myself and it's humbling, I'll tell you. Um, you, you see your, your, your uh, foibles and quirks and it's necessary, I think, to, to humanize us. Um, so I don't have any other, uh, other formulas. Um, well, I'm, I'm curious, what, what are some of the things that you learned about yourself between the first really long-term relationship and the next? Well, I, I sometimes joke with people um, and, and say that um, I, my wife and I fit well together so easily because I'm, I'm more self-absorbed and she's other-absorbed. She's focused on other people almost to the exclusion of herself, and I tend to be, having been a gymnast and so on, a bit more self-absorbed. So seeing that as a quality of mine, it can at least be aware a, a consciously self-absorbed person rather than unconsciously. So I can learn to turn my attention more to other people and recognize uh, uh, that they're not just supporting characters in my life, but that their lives are just as important. So just once, you know, awareness of a problem is the beginning of the solution. And so seeing uh, how, how we tend to take more in the world than we give, if we look at ourselves realistically, you know, people are always talking about the power of forgiveness, forgiving others. Well, I think if, if we're really paying attention, we'll find our businesses asking forgiveness. Um, but that brings up a whole other topic. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I did a, a training once. Um, it involved a kind of meditation or contemplation from the moment I woke up in the morning, literally sitting behind a screen uh, all day. Throughout the day, uh, we were served small meals at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But at the rest of the time, we were just sitting behind the screen um, contemplating three questions. First, I took two days, two full days to contemplate this in relation to my mother, then my father, then others in my life. I was there for seven days doing this, morning till night. And the three questions are, what have I received from this person in a, in a particular period of time? We go through different phases. What have I given back to this person? And the third question is, what troubles or difficulties have I caused this person? And it's called Nikon. It's a Japanese process. It means looking inward in a particular way. And I started to realize that I have been given more than I've given to the world. I've been given more by the world. This chair I'm sitting on, the gift of being able to speak with you, this computer in front of me, all the things that have allowed me to do my work, I've received more than I've given. Uh, and, and if we look closely, at, but the main that we spend the most time is contemplating what troubles or difficulties do I cause other people? Um, when did I make my wife clean up after me because I, I didn't do the dishes? Uh, uh, the fact that uh, my clothes miraculously appear in my drawer folded up after they were dirty and I threw them in a hamper. Wow, must be elves. How did that happen? <laughs> so the, the point is in relationship, doing this each evening even can help 
heal resentment and can help enrich a relationship and realize we're indebted to that person we're with. All the things we ignore take for granted. So that's that's uh, something I would I would say. And and actually to, to kind of draw to a close, um, I think one thing I would end with is that it's very important for us to not compare ourselves to other people. It's uh, comparing. The Buddhists say that comparison is a form of suffering because it's a disrespect for our own process and how we live. And we're each here not to live anybody else's life or like anybody else. We're, we can have role models for positive qualities, and that's great. But we're here to live our life. A writer once said, I cannot write a book commensurate to Shakespeare, but I can write a book by me. And we're here to live our lives and trust our process unfolding. So that, that is a message I, I like to convey these days to, as, as a reminder, as a reminder that I remind myself of as well. Hmm. Dan, you have so many beautiful ideas. Thank you so much for taking the time to share them with us. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Dan, his books, all the different things that he does, we're going to post a link on the Craft Christmas website and within the description of this podcast so you can find out more about him and everything he does more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. It's Dating Coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, Go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.